Well, hello, VCOB. I am elated to be here. Hopefully I don't unplug anything important. Um, I am elated to be here. Uh, My name is Chris Lash. I work at Judson University as their dean of university ministries. And that just means I'm like a youth pastor for older kids that have just different drama than high schoolers, which is great, which is great because it puts my life into perspective quite often. Um, I'm kidding. I have a couple students who are here. I love you. Um, So uh, have you ever forgotten something that you're supposed to remember? I didn't think you guys would respond. This is like a new thing for me, people responding like actually during messages. Normally, I've said this before, I do chapel like 10 a.m. and students don't get out of bed till 11. And so um, they're always there and I'm like, hey guys, how you doing? And it's like crickets all the time. So the fact that you guys dialogue, this is like really fun and new and fantastic. So apparently we've forgotten things. We have, we've forgotten things and they're important things. I have, a, I have a program that I use, uh, just an app on my phone that syncs up on my computer in order to catch all those random things. So periodically, I'll be in a conversation with someone, and I like, can't get out of my head because if I, uh, uh, I won't be able to focus on the person across from me if I don't get this thing out of my head. Is anyone else like that? Um, it happens during my quiet time, too, or anything, where I just have to like, pull out my phone really quick, like jot down, like, uh, I don't know, water the plant, and then like, put it away. Otherwise, it's going to die, because I'll, I'll never remember. I'll just forget completely. Well, recently, there was something, and um, there was something I forgot that I am not supposed to forget ever. Like, it's like the one thing you're supposed to remember. I've been married now about nine months, 10 months. No, it's not that. It's something else. Um, so I've been married. I've been, I've been married. I know our wedding date. Um, so, uh, able to, no, May. So, so, um, I was supposed, so my, I, I'm, I'm working on a project right now with a friend of mine at Judson, and we'll talk more about that at the end of our message. Um, but I'm, I'm there, and he turns to me and he goes, Hey, uh, when's, when's your wife's birthday? When's her birthday coming up? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so fun. It's like April 24th. This is fantastic. Uh, why do you ask? He goes, that's crazy. That's my wife's birthday. And I was like, no way. This is the coolest thing I've ever heard. We can celebrate together. And something about the way he was looking at me was like, ah, son, I think you're off. And he was like, are you sure that's her birthday? And I was like, come on, Tim. I know my wife's birthday is. It's April 24th. He goes, oh, okay, sweet. So um, did I mention it was Valentine's Day? And so he goes home to his wife and he tells his wife, you know, you, you and Sari share the same birthday. How did we not establish that? She lived with us for several months. How did we not establish that you guys have the same birthday? This is incredible. Uh, Abby goes, that is not her birthday. <laughs> He goes, what do you mean? I heard it from her husband, from the one who loves her the most, who's covenanted his life with her, who has decided to share her burdens, her longings, who, you know, I, I, he said it was the 24th and she goes, I swear that's not her birthday. So did I mention it was Valentine's Day? And, and so he decides to call my wife on Valentine's Day, on speakerphone, this is all unbeknownst to me. We like wrapped up our project and I skittled home like going like, da, 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 I know my wife's birthday. And he calls her up and he goes, Siri, when is your birthday? And she goes, why? Just, just a question, just when is your birthday? When is your birthday? 
She goes, uh, April 28th. And he goes, and there's just a long pause on the other end of the line as he goes, uh. and then Sari responds, did Chris get my birthday wrong again? And did I mention it was Valentine's Day? And so, so Tim goes, like not wanting to rat a brother out, but by calling her, he did. So, so, so now I get to celebrate two birthdays for the rest of my life. And now, for some reason, I have it locked in my mind that her birthday is the 24th, 26th, and 28th. So she's going to have like a fantastic week sometime. And I just hope I get the month right because at some point, we're just going to call it a week of Sarah. Have you ever forgotten something you're supposed to remember? You ever forgotten something you're supposed to remember? In our text today, Israel is going to feel like they were the ones that God was supposed to remember. And yet God has forgotten about them. Yet God is the one going, where, where did we put Israel? What happened with them? How did we? We are continuing the series in Exodus. And the first three installments of this series, we're using the theme forgotten to try and get at what's happening in the life of Israel as they are in Egypt. And we're going to be in Exodus 2. I hear some pages, so you're not guessing. We're going to be in Exodus 2. And so there are three things by way of preparation that I want to give us as we have lenses for what we are about to read. We are on the heels of the Genesis story. And in many ways, uh, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. And Michael said in week one that this is a sequel to Genesis. Well, we are moving from the creation of all things to the creation of a people, from the general to the particular of a specific people group. This is a Jewish way of telling stories, of telling narratives. We move from the large to the particular. Just think about Genesis 1 and 2. We move from the large, grand scale of creation to all of a sudden it zooms microscopic in and you see different conversations happening. We move from the grand to the particular And God is doing something intentional with this people um, in Egypt. Um, He is forming them. He is shaping this nation into existence. And if you pay attention with the eyes of the Genesis creation story, um, you'll see creation language everywhere. Because Exodus is a reimagining, is a recreation, is a rebringing out of God's people. And we'll draw and highlight some of those points there. This book very much reaches back into the creation story as its theological foundation. And as we think about God in this whole story, it's drawing and pulling from these creation foundational narratives. And then this book operates very differently in the rest of the canon This is Jesus' fourth most quoted book. This book not only reaches backwards into Genesis, but it also projects forward to anticipate everything that comes after until we get to Matthew, until we get to the Gospels. 
This book is a fascinating book of scripture because it reaches backwards and it projects forward. And if you read through the gospels, you'll see that Jesus uses a lot of language like deliverance and salvation and kingdom. And in the Jewish consciousness, what they are pulling from largely is this book of Exodus. They're largely pulling from this book of Exodus. So not only is it connected to Genesis, but it is a foundational book in the mind of the Jewish person, which is why it's worthwhile for us to study, not only because it's part of the canon, but because it is foundational for our faith to understand what happened to God's people. This is crucial. I don't want us to miss this. The reason this is so foundational Because this Exodus narrative tells the story of deliverance from Egypt. And this has in the Old Testament, follow me, the same weighty significance as the cross of the New Testament. This has the exact same weight in Hebrew consciousness, in Jewish consciousness. This is the cross of the Old Testament for them. And if you see it with different eyes, you begin to see why. And I'm sure we'll draw some out as the series progresses. The the second thing I want us to pick up about this book is that this story starts in chaos. Do Do you hear the creation language? This story starts in chaos and violence. This story starts in chaos and violence. Um, The chaos of Pharaoh and of Egypt has run rampant. The new Pharaoh in Egypt has forgotten history, has forgotten the way of Israel's God, has forgotten the way God saved Egypt from desolation and famine. Just Pharaoh has forgotten who Joseph was. We run into trouble when we forget our history. We run into trouble when we forget our history. And for Pharaoh, forgetting history meant that he enslaved people. And so he begins to see the Hebrew people differently. Rather than seeing them as co-laborers for the good of Egypt, he shifts his mentality and begins to view them as a threat to his political and economic power. Um, They have grown and multiplied, creation language, they have grown and multiplied. The very blessing of God is used as an indictment on God's people. They have grown and multiplied, and they grew too large. And we're not told that they have been disruptive. We're not told that they have been a problem. We are not told that crime rates have spiked or that the Egyptian people are particularly fearful of the Hebrews. But all of a sudden, we're only told that Pharaoh decides that they are too many, that they represent a potential future problem, and that all of a sudden, uh, they could rise up and disrupt everything. They could leave, taking all the lower class labor with them. And so Pharaoh starts up his media machine and he starts projecting out one single narrative to the people around him because he uses the word let's in chapter one. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's do this. Let's do this. He starts his media machine. He starts casting it out. The Hebrew people are dangerous. The Hebrew people are not to be trusted. The Hebrew people are a threat. The Hebrew people, if you like your current way of life, fellow Egyptians, we need to do something about this Hebrew people. And where does it end up getting them? It gets them into slavery because you have to desensitize the consciousness of a people in order to commit something insane. 
And so he starts his dehumanizing project. They are enslaved. He subjugates them and he hatches a plan to keep them from growing beyond his means of control. And so he decides to kill the male babies because here's why. And this is the theological significance of this beside just the atrocity of the genocide. If you take away a people's future, they're not going anywhere. If you take away a people's future, they're not going anywhere. Is it any wonder that in the scriptures, God consistently reminds people that I have a future for you? If you take away a people's future, they're not going anywhere. They have no vision and no way out. Third, the third thing I want us to see before we jump into our text is um, that this is a series of reversals. Exodus chapter one and two starts the series of reversal. The most unexpected things, the most unexpected people begin to upend Pharaoh's very stable kingdom. Okay, we'll run through a handful of them. Pharaoh's very method of destruction by throwing the babies into the Nile River um, is the very thing used to save Moses. Pharaoh devalues the worth of the Hebrew women by saying the girls can live, the girl babies can live. However, it's the Hebrew women. In fact, it's the women in the entire story that are the ones that subverts Pharaoh's dominance, control, power, prestige. It's the women who frustrate Pharaoh's plans. In fact, it's actually a consistent theme throughout Exodus. And in chapter four, there's some like weird things in Exodus that uh, women are the one who come through consistently through this book. Pharaoh's own daughters are the ones who undermine his policy and have compassion to help baby Moses. Pharaoh ends up paying Moses's mom for her to care for Moses. Which some moms in here, I imagine, are like, amen. (laughs) I'm sure my mom would feel that. Pharaoh's own daughter gives Moses a name that has both Egyptian and Hebraic significance. The Hebraic significance the author draws out is to draw out, as in to draw out of the water where... Pharaoh's own daughter foretells of the deliverance of Egypt by the very naming of Moses. It's a prophetic act from a non-prophetic person. Moses is known to be a Hebrew. People know him as a Hebrew. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter knows that he is a Hebrew, but he's trained up as an Egyptian leader. Reversal, 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 Reversal. The very things that are considered not important, the very things that are discounted, are the things that the Lord uses time and time again to upset, to frustrate the plans of Pharaoh. So now in our story, we are going to jump ahead in Moses' life, and we're going to get, we, we've known him when he's very young, and he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and now we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 11, where he's grown up a little bit. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 is where we are going to start. Verse 11 says, one day when Moses had grown up, 
he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So there's a couple things I want to point out here as we're going to make our way through this text. The last time we saw Moses, he was being raised in the Pharaoh's house. He's been adopted into their family. He's being educated, groomed, and raised as a member of the royal family. Uh, He is not blood, but he is considered family by adoption uh, for Egyptian adoption rights. He is a member of the royal house. And so this story begins with the question of Moses's identity. Uh, We've known that he's a Hebrew by birth, but does he identify with his people? Who does Moses think he is? Who does Egypt think he is? Who does Israel think he is? And we have no idea or to what degree he still considers himself a Hebrew, that he still identifies with his people. Uh, Would he reject his people? Would he connect to his heritage? Does he even know or care about his people's suffering? So the story is specific to point out on two separate occasions that he sees his people's burdens and he saw the Egyptian beating one of his people. And Moses responds by looking around to make sure that no one else was looking and then he kills the Egyptian. This is not your role model. He kills the Egyptian And commentators are split, whether this is a murder of passion or whether this is premeditation. Some look at the fact that he looked around uh, as this is very much premeditation. And some look at it and say, it's still kind of a murder of passion because we see Moses doing this thing consistently where he rises up in anger and does some dumb thing that he then gets punished for later on. And so people aren't quite sure how to take it. But bottom line, he kills and hides the Egyptian. Moses has taken the situation into his own hand. How is this going to turn out? Let's see, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. One of his people, one of his own people turns to him in the heat of the moment and tells Moses off. Wait, do you plan to kill me too? I've seen that you have kind of like this anger thing. Don't get angry, Moses. We know what happens when you get angry. Calm down, Moses. If if you're going to kill me like you did him, we all know what happened to the Egyptian. Apparently, the guy who survived told the story to somebody else, who told the story to somebody else to the point where some other Israelites are going, oh, this guy, this guy might not be safe. This guy, we don't really know what to think about him. And they, in this miraculous, like, equalizing of the person, they tell him off, which is insane considering he's a member of royalty, but they have something on him. Let's go to verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by 
a well or by a certain well. Some uh, translations say sat down by a certain well, which should again trigger your mind back to Genesis. People are sitting by wells. What happens? Let's go to verse 16. When people sit by wells, they get married. Verse 16. I'm not even kidding you. It's going to happen here. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. There's a key. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came down, came to dr- and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So we have this sense of justice from Moses. What happens in this first story, we have his identity affirmed that he does identify as a Hebrew. He has this weird perverted sense of justice and this anger issue, which will play itself out through this book. And then we see he sits down by a certain well and there's a handful of ladies around there. And uh, there are shepherds that come over and they start driving the women away. And Moses is not having any of this. And so he starts to oppose them, which is really gutsy because shepherds aren't like these dainty individuals that just sit outside. Like we think of like shepherds uh, in in a modern sense in like an ATV or something like that. Like they're able to go back inside. Like these shepherds lived outside. Like they were like your hardened people. Like David, remember, he's fighting off bears. So, So Moses comes up and he's like driving them away. That's like a courageous thing to do. That's a sense of justice. And when they came home to their father, rule, he said, how is it that you're able to come home so soon today? This project was supposed to take much longer. And they said, an Egyptian, which is interesting, they look at Moses and they see an Egyptian. They don't see a Hebrew. An Egyptian delivered us out of the land of the, out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. This is incredible. Let's keep going. Verse 20. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. This guy's probably famished. Come have him stay with us. He seems like a good guy. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Told you, marriage. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses is pretty confused about who he is and where he belongs. People don't know where he belongs. Israel doesn't know where he belongs. His new family doesn't know where he belongs. And so he names his kid in the midst of all of this, Gershom, which means I have been a sojourner. I have made my home in a foreign land. I have made my home in a foreign land. Clearly in this story, Moses is being set up as the guy to save Israel. But so far, he's killed an Egyptian, been told off by his own people, made an enemy of one of the most powerful individuals in the world, and has fled for his life because Pharaoh wants to kill him. And he settles just outside the Egyptian empire in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's rejected by his own people and he's accepted by outsiders. Moses has no idea who he is. And like the creation story, Moses has fled. He's done something wrong and in shame, he has fled into the wilderness where he's been fed and clothed. Does that remind you of anything? 
there's a retelling of this creation narrative. You can hear the creation beats going throughout this story, even in the midst of the chaos that's around. Now, most preachers would focus on uh, Moses, which makes sense because he's the subject of the text, but I'm curious to focus on somebody else. Not because I'm better, but just because sometimes I get bored when I research and I think this is interesting. If you're a Hebrew here, if you're one of the people in slavery, as the camera pans and follows Moses into the desert, what's going through your mind? Where are you at? Here comes this guy who's Egyptian royalty. He interrupts an Egyptian punishment and then he kills the man who is dishing out this Egyptian punishment. But most of all, while you might think, and while Moses clearly thought that the Hebrew people would be like, oh my gosh, finally a savior, we will come follow you, we will do our thing. What goes through the Hebrew's mind is what kind of terror will rain down on us because it will be assumed that a Hebrew killed someone. Moses, what have you done? You have made our situation, which is terrible in slavery, and you have made it so much worse. You cannot kill a taskmaster. That is like rule number one of being enslaved under Pharaoh. You cannot take out an Egyptian. So we're not really predisposed to like Moses in this moment. The Hebrews certainly don't. They won't claim him. And so let's dig into it a little bit more. Um, If you're a Hebrew, so Moses has left. This royalty has left. Where is God here for you? Where is God here for you? Because so far in this story, we have seen him not once. Sure, we've seen him bless the midwives because they were faithful and fearing God above Pharaoh. We saw him bless the midwives, but he didn't encounter the midwives. And we don't even know if the midwives connected their actions to the families they were able to have. We presume that might have been what happened, but we have not seen God enter into this story at all. It has been moving from the particular of the story, what's going on on the ground, to the general of God. And so chapter 1 ends, with God blessing and caring for the Hebrew midwives, but God has not encountered a person yet in the story. As far as the Hebrews know, God is not present at all. I imagine uh, word got out that Moses was an undercover Jew in this Egyptian empire. I imagine that at least some people understood that he was near the seat of power, And that they knew who he was to some degree. Not saying everyone, but perhaps some. This is the guy that can influence policy. This is the guy that can help us. This is the guy that can soften Pharaoh's heart towards us. This is the guy that can get Pharaoh's daughter to connect to Pharaoh to all of a sudden then issue an edict of like, okay, we don't hate these people anymore. This is going to be our representative in Pharaoh's court. This man is going to be on our side. And so how disappointed and hopeless as a people would you be when he leaves? How alone and isolated would you feel? How abandoned would you feel? 
Can you imagine how much they would have felt abandoned? Our guy is gone. Our one hope, our one shot that we had. Maybe we could go, okay, maybe God was orchestrating something, but it's gone. The guy's failed. He failed before he started. I think many of us identify with Israel here. I think many of us identify with Israel. God, have you forgotten about us here? Have you forgotten about me here? Now what, Lord? We had a plan. We thought we were going somewhere. Now what? For you, anxiety might have taken control and panic attacks are the norm. God, have you forgotten about me? Narrating the book to us. This is great. No, you're good. You're good. That's all right. That's all right. Things happen, man. God, have you forgotten about us? Have you forgotten about me? I have been on a job search for a while and I'm trying to discern next steps. God, have you forgotten about me? The anxiety of the time, do you feel this? Do you sense this madness in the anxiety of the times? God, it feels like everything is on fire all the time. Have you forgotten about us? God, I am trying to love my spouse, but things feel ice cold still. Have you forgotten about our marriage? I am praying and loving my kids, but they act out or have taken paths away from me and have said nasty things that break my heart. God, have you forgotten about me? God, I am single and earnestly hoping for someone. God, have you forgotten about me? I am trapped in a loveless marriage. God, have you forgotten about me? I got the diagnosis. I lost someone I love. I have hard decisions to make and I thought you were leading somewhere a miracle could be, but it was taken away from me. God, have you forgotten about me? Or perhaps what most gets me. I keep seeking you day after day after day after day and radio silence is all I get. Silence. God, have you forgotten about me? All these other people are seeing miracles. They're seeing you work. They're moving up in their careers. They're moving around them. God, I am seeing the spirit work in people around me. But silence. And it doesn't take long for that sense of feeling forgotten to fuse itself to despair. Where hope become something you cannot bring yourself to have because what happens if it's dashed one more time? God, have you forgotten about me? And all while this happens, all while we sense this, all while we feel this deep in our bones that there is something greater that might have forgotten about us but we're not really sure what to do with it, We are in Egypt, working away, serving Pharaoh. And while we are serving the Pharaohs of success, of power, of prestige, of of the nuclear family, while we are serving the Pharaohs of our age, we end up giving our lives and minds to Egypt without even realizing it. 
And we let Egypt take our imagination and our future. So if you don't get the promotion that you want, all of a sudden your future is canceled. If something happens in your world, your future is canceled. Something steals something from you, and all of a sudden their imagination has gone to nothing. It's just black fuzz. There is nothing after this. You're kind of done. Because this is a modern-day Egypt. This is a modern-day Egypt. Egypt is counter-programming what's happening in our text. Egypt is counter-programming what's happening here in order to overtake and overshadow what God could potentially be doing. Any, any, any sense of hope, Egypt counter-programs over it. It counter-programs with power, with comfort, with prestige, with consumerism. Egypt is counter-programming and it forms us into what we can think, into what we should fear, into how we should respond in the midst of that fear. Egypt, our present area, I'm talking about America, is counter-programming us out of the promises of God, out of the ways of the Hebrew people, out of an imagination that has deliverance on the horizon. So not only do we feel forgotten by God, but we have Egyptian counter-programming on in the background, forming our thoughts, telling us that maybe God doesn't really speak, that he isn't really present, that he doesn't fit neatly and nicely into our post-enlightenment mold, that we shouldn't expect too much of him because it's probably all in your head anyway. I think we have three responses. I think we have three possible responses. We have three options. First, we can ignore the dissonance that we feel. We can ignore it. We can put our spiritual fingers in our ears and just try and counter-program the counter-programming by saying, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to you. You don't have any power here. That weird sense to Lord of the Rings. You have no power here, Gandalf. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? All right. <laughs> this is what happens when you have an ADHD preacher, man. This is why I have notes. Okay. We can ignore the dissonance. We can keep praising as if nothing happened at all. We can just cover it up with trite phrases or worse yet, turning off our mind completely and expect less and less and less from the church, less and less from pastors, less and less from books, less and less from scripture. And eventually it will eat us away. We can ignore it. We can ignore it. Secondly, and this is something my generation is specifically struggling with, we can grow cynical and begin deconstructing our faith. We can grow cynical and begin deconstructing our faith. 
It's, um, you probably have seen in a number of locations people beginning to deconstruct their faith. And unfortunately, I don't have a, a time to do a full treatment of what that is and looks like and how it is not an actually intellectually honest response to faith and response to difficulty. What's interesting to me is most of the deconstructing people are responding to fundamentalisms, closed-minded, everybody else is the enemy, and we are not to love anybody else, and they're mostly responding to this by just going, let's crack the egg open and be present, but that's not actually a helpful response. Because the cynicism that leads to deconstruction is not the same thing as doubt. Cynicism is not the same thing as doubt. It is a very different thing entirely. Doubt is a desire to believe. Cynicism is a desire to find fault. Doubt is a desire to believe and it's affirmed everywhere in the scriptures. I believe, help my unbelief, the centurion says, it's affirmed. Cynicism is never affirmed. Cynicism begins to rot our faith. It begins to feed us the counter-programming of Egypt, the counter-programming of where we are by saying that God can't show up, that God won't work. He just won't. He's not going to pay attention to you. And that those who experience the move of the Spirit are absolutely naive. Our third option, I believe, is what's shown here. Our third option. It's not ignoring It's not growing cynical. We have a third option. We see it in chapter, we see it in uh, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Israel groaned, Israel cried out, Israel cried out for rescue. And this text uses strong bodily, embodied language to describe what Israel is doing. It's like they're groaning under the weight of slavery. That's what the text is trying to communicate. It's like an old garage coffee table that you buy from a garage sale that you put way too much on when you're moving it and when it's, and you can hear it groaning under the weight of the very things you've put on it. It's that kind of groaning. It's not complaining. It's not just moaning about things. This is a groaning that Israel is experiencing. Their very bodies shake and cry out to God in the midst of backbreaking labor, in the midst of a stolen future, in the midst of a loss of imagination. And how does God respond? It says that God heard, that God remembered that God saw and that God knew. That God heard, that God remembered, that God saw and God knew. 
Now, these are not cognitive words. I want us to disconnect this from cognitive words because we think we see things like heard, remembered, saw, and knew, and we think in terms of the tangibility of them. We think in terms of like our Western mindset prizes the mind above all else. And so when we hear this, we think that God is pulling memory from an ancient file cabinet that he has put back there like the tasks on my to-do list, and he's bringing it forward and going, oh, crap, that's right, put Israel I forgot about where they were. We got to do something. We got to figure something out. Like all of a sudden we think in terms of like this remembrance, because that's how we experience remember, but that's not the theological scope of the word remember throughout the Old Testament specifically. It's not remember as in pulling from ancient filing cabinet. It's remember as in remember, reconnect. But was God ever distant? And here is where our theological systems often put us off. In our area, specifically in the western suburbs, we often emphasize the transcendence of God. We often emphasize that God is high above, that he is mighty, he is good, he is gracious, he is in control of all things, he is ruling all things, and that is absolutely true. God is absolutely sovereign, but what the Old Testament consistently does is it tries to take this God up here and connect it into the real life. The thing I love about Old Testament narrative is it does not let you escape escape into the sovereignty of God. It allows the sovereignty of God to exist in the wallpaper of your spiritual minds, but it puts God in the moment with you that he is actually imminent and it shows us what it means for him to be imminent. Because yes, he is mighty and powerful. None of that is in doubt, but we need to hear that he hears, that he remembers, that he sees and that he knows. This remembering word, hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing, this would have brought great comfort to Israel because it's the fact that God cares. It's the fact that God cares. As Israel's bodies strain under the weight of slavery, we get a glimpse into God's internal world. God himself strains. He knows, this last word knows, he knows. This is before the temple. This is before Jesus' presence on the earth. But yet you can hear the text pulling from all of this creation background with a word like knowing, putting God in the very situation And it's as if God is with them, walking with them. Not a, he is with them. That he knows, that he is present, that he is near, that he is actually with his people. This is not a disconnected divine story. This is an imminent God who's present It's as if God is walking among his people. And so here's the third option very plainly. We can follow the pattern of Israel. We can follow the pattern of Israel and we can groan and cry out and offer it to the Lord. We can groan and cry out and offer it to the Lord. So give it to him. Let him take it. 
Let him take our very groaning for our city, for all of Chicagoland. Let him take the groaning for our health, for our relationships, for our vocation, for our spiritual hunger. We can take that and offer that all up to him to let him hear our cry, to let him hear our groaning, to tell him when we felt forgotten. And that the biblical pattern throughout the Psalms is that might actually be worship. In fact, it is worship. It's called lament. The Hebrew people are lamenting their situation. And they are demanding that God responds to something. And this is a pattern throughout the New Testament too. People go up to Jesus when they are in the midst of their sickness, when they have family problems, when they need Jesus to be present and hear and something. And they offer it to him and say, Jesus, you are the only one that can do anything here. Please do something. And you hear it even when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus. If you remember, uh, uh, Martha goes up to him and says, if you were here, he would not have died. That's groaning. That's offering it up to Jesus. That's giving it to him because he can take it. He can handle it. He is the one who brings it into himself and on the cross kills this sense of forgottenness. And the reason he tells the disciples, it is better that I leave you than for me to stay is because he gives you the spirit of God, which is not the hocus pocus floaty spirit of God. It's, all, it's, it's his very presence. Theologically, theologians through church history have said that it is the spirit of God. It is God's very self. It is Christ with you, with you, in you, around you, above you, below you. He is with you here and now and you draw on the Spirit's power you are sustained by the Spirit's power you create from the Spirit's power perhaps even create a new future by the Spirit's power and so here's how I would like us to close and I'll invite Dale back up here's I'm going to have us close I want this to move from a preaching space to a heart space And we're doing something similar at Judson. We're releasing a guided prayers project album where for the last eight weeks of the semester, we are releasing two prayers per week created by members of our community. We're getting like text message updates and stuff like that because I want to begin to reimagine the way in which we take the scriptures and we internalize it. And so we're going to try some of that here today. So our so what section because I know we do so what. Our so what section is going to be a guided prayer. Now, if this um, weirds you out for a little bit, uh, what I want you to know is that Christians for centuries have been doing this. This is our tradition. This is our tradition. We've been using prayer as a, this prayer style as a way to be still before the Lord and listen to him. And personally, I've found it incredibly helpful um, as it encourages me to begin praying the scriptures, not just cognitively hearing the scriptures, but to know the scriptures in my being. In fact, um, this is what Jesus did. He didn't have the cool Dale, but he had the scriptures. If you look at the wilderness wanderings where Jesus is sent, he's driven, uh, Mark says, he's driven into the wilderness. And what does he do? He faces off with Satan, the accuser himself, and he quotes consistently from Deuteronomy. 
And Bible scholars surmise that he must have been meditating on Deuteronomy the entire time of his wilderness because he consistently draws from Deuteronomy as a way to rebuff Satan's attacks. And then he uses Deuteronomy as the launch pad for his ministry. So internalizing the very scriptures is the way that Jesus even launched into ministry afterwards. And so I'd like to lead us in a guided prayer. Here's what to expect. Uh, We'll begin with ourselves. We'll move outwards so we can consider and pray for those around us. And we'll utilize a couple different prayer styles and I'll explain them as I go. Are you with me? All right. I'd like you to find a comfortable posture. I encourage you to either put your feet on the floor or if you sit cross-legged, put your hands on your knees or on the chairs in front of you, whatever is helpful. I encourage you to close your eyes and begin focusing on your breathing. Begin focusing on your breathing. Let's begin to quiet our minds. If your mind wanders, that's all right. We can acknowledge those things and we can move on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, theologian, believed that this may be an indicator from the Spirit that this is something you need to pray for. So take a deep breath in. breathe out take a deep breath in and breathe out listen to this scripture from the New Testament read over you keep breathing in and out with your eyes closed likewise the spirit helps us in our weaknesses For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now with your eyes remaining closed, I want us to do a breath prayer. Or when we breathe in, we say something either out loud or to ourselves, And then when we breathe out, we say something either out loud to ourselves. It's a way to internalize the very scriptures that we've heard. So on the way in, say, Lord, you see me. And as you breathe out, and you know. And on your way in, Lord, you see me. And on your way out, and you know. Continue with your breath prayers as I read another passage of scripture over you. The text says, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? 
if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. As you continue with your breath prayer, Lord, you see me and you know. Can we ever be forgotten? Can he overlook us to someone else? Nothing can separate, the text says. Nothing can bring distance. Nothing can get between us. God's very love is his presence. It's not disconnected. It's not disembodied. It is his presence with us. And he embraces us. So I encourage you to take your hand and put it on your heart. Take your hand and put it on your heart. Do you feel forgotten by God? That temptation is to hold it in. Temptation is to just keep it tight. With your hand over your heart, feeding your, feeling your beating heart, feeling the reality that God is sustaining you, what would it look like to surrender that to him? To surrender your sense of forgottenness. I encourage you to tell him that we feel your absence here. And so what do you need for him to say to you? What do you need to hear from God himself? Now take your hands and open your palms out as a way to surrender and as a way to release. Father, there are things that we are holding on to. There are ways in which we feel forgotten and abandoned and we groan out and cry for you to act. And so take this from us. And in the very act of offering this to you, we receive. We recognize with our hands out that we receive you. So we invite him in. We ask you to be present. And now think of that thing that you feel forgotten about. God, I receive you into my blank. What is it? I receive you into my marriage, job, future. Now our last move, part of being in the body of Christ is that we consider the ones around us. We minister and love and care and are present for the men and women around us. So what would it look like 
for you to recognize the forgottenness around you. We ask the Spirit of God to put someone in your mind now who may need to hear that they have not been forgotten. So who is that person? Who can you reach out to? Father, we recognize that we sense this forgottenness and it's part of our fallenness in this creation story. We pray that you take our feelings of forgottenness. We recognize you don't take them away, but you deal with it by being present and near. So be with our week this week. Be with us as we seek to love others and care for the ones around us. We love you. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.